Hi, I'm Eva Longoria, director of Flaming Hot. Hi, I'm Federico Cantini, VP of Flaming Hot. And we are on the Cinematography Podcast. We are so excited. You don't understand what a fan I am of this podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's, it's going good, and if you're watching us on YouTube, and I know that uh, some portion of you are, un- <laughs> to my chagrin, you should notice that Ilya's picture looks way better than mine. Before we get into why, tell me, Ilya, who's on the show today? We're very fortunate to have the creative team behind Flamin' Hot, the movie you can watch right now on multiple streaming services, uh, director Eva Longoria, and director of photography Federico Cantini. Nice, nice. And now, close focus. So we fired up the Zoom as we always do uh, to do the host wraps. And as we lately do, we fired up the Zooms uh, to record it so uh, people could see your tastefully decorated office and my (laughs) uh, complete garbage dump that I work out of. And I was stunned and impressed to see that your office, uh, everything behind you is out of focus. We're in like super shallow depth of field land. And this is a webcam but is it a webcam <laughs> uh yes well it's being used as a webcam it is a $2200 mirrorless camera that's being marketed towards vloggers made by Sony yeah it's the Sony ZV-E1 we do keep this camera in stock at Hot Rod Cameras and it has been gathering a little bit of a following mainly because of people who I would say are interested in owning like an A7S 3 or an FX3 but they don't really have the full use case to justify spending $3,600 plus on a camera, but $2,200, which is frankly in the same ballpark as many other highly capable DSLR mirrorless style cameras, uh, but they love the sensor and that Sony look, it's Sony E-mount, it does 4K 120 frames and a lot of other stuff. It's, you know, it's a, a totally inexpensive, totally it serviceable does four, camera. 4K at 120 frames? Yeah, real 120 frames. You do have to update the firmware. Uh, yeah, this camera does it. It's been it's been interesting. I've been traveling around with it for the last few months and starting to learn more about it. And it's become my webcam. Yeah, and it's what I'm using for the podcast. I'm about to send it to uh, our my buddy Joey, who sometimes does reviews and stuff for Hot Rod. He's going to go to South Africa for ten days, and uh, I told him he could take this and play around with it, and you know. Do, do some fun stuff. We'll see what happens. It's it's crazy because, like, again, I'm just used to everything looking like a pile of ass on Zoom. We don't care, right? It's Zoom. It's usually webcams. And honestly, uh, I don't mean to brag, but usually my webcam looks better than anyone because I'm using my iPhone, the rear-facing cameras, and Camo Studio. So I, I'm able to have slightly shallow depth of field, not like cinematic depth of field like what you have there but just slightly shallow depth of field naturally without having to do anything fancy and you know like uh, i've got a a little bit more control over the colors yada 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 and then your thing comes on you're wearing a green shirt and the green just really pops and your skin tones look like i'm sitting in the room with you and again the background totally whacked out of focus you're on what a 50 millimeter lens 
Exactly. 50 millimeter lens. Yeah. And I'm sitting about two and a half feet from the camera. And I want to be clear, too, that like of the two of us, you're the guy with the company, not me. Uh, but I, I want everyone to know I was the one who suggested that we uh, talk about this camera instead of talking about some current event in the film business. Uh, last week, I was going to talk with you about the uh, Ted Sarandos uh, Netflix releasing uh, their statistics and stuff. And you talked about it without me. So, uh, you know, I'm shaking my fist at you but uh i had no voice uh, sorry uh, yeah yeah <laughs> last week you, we, you, were, you weren't here you were sick i was i was sick i had a horrible cold i had lost my voice and i also was getting over pink eye pink I didn't eye I, didn't, I wasn't going to reveal that then. I didn't Ooh. tell anyone what, what was going on with you. Pink eye. And I know, by the way, before anyone like lights me up on social media, I know pink eye is a symptom of COVID, but I did mm. take two different COVID tests and came up negative on both of them. So even if I did have COVID, wasn't contagious, totally healthy now. Um, but anyway, glad, glad you're better. I just uh, I just wanted everybody to know, though, that it was my idea, because as soon as your image popped up on here, I was like, everybody's going to want to have a webcam that looks this good. And the only person that we've ever had on the show who had a webcam that looked anywhere nearly as good as this is Maddie Lee Boutique, who did, I think, basically the same setup that you have, where he was looping a uh, DSLR or a mirrorless DSLR somehow for zoom in. And uh, we, we almost need to explain, like, so how do you get it out of the camera and into the webcam and how do you get Zoom to talk to it? Well, I will tell you, it didn't start like this. I've been using this camera for a few weeks and you and I had talked about when we went to video, how we didn't want it to be a major impact into our lives. Like we still needed to be as simple as we did the podcast. We need to be able to like plop down every week, have our host wraps, have our interviews, do whatever it was. And it wasn't going to impinge on us being able to do the podcast or to, you know, make it a big hassle. The last thing I really wanted to do, and I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I was getting like the rolling, scrolling, mm -hmm. you know, uh, refresh line oh, yeah, going, through, that, going yeah. through the screen. But this is from me uh, fumbling around for a while now going, uh, okay, I I don't want this to be a big deal. I don't want to have a big light. I don't want to have a big soft source. I don't want to do a bunch of things. It has to be the lightest lift possible. It has to be so easy. So everything I'm doing here, I'm trying to keep it super, super easy. That's that's the idea. Yeah, and uh, I've got a setup for you, Ben, I'm going to send to you. So in not too distant future, probably like a week or two when you're back from the holidays, you should be able to do the exact same thing. We'll figure out the light thing for you, but uh, we'll have the exact same camera. Oh, cool. and, and I'll, th I'll throw my lens baby on here. I'll do my all the whole thing from lens baby. <laughs> yeah, and then you'll just have like one eye sort of in focus in the whole background. But here's the thing. Even if you do have a, a light lift and you do make it easy and you do put a, a proper camera in front of you, I still think that most people would benefit if you actually just learned a couple of very basic manual settings. Like if you just learned ISO and you just learned shutter speed and you just learned white balance, like if you learned like three things, this all of a sudden gets way easier for you. And then you're not reliant on the camera having to figure it out every time. Because as good as these cameras get right now, my skin doesn't look this color. My shirt doesn't look this color. If I just put it all in auto, everything changes. So that's, uh, you know, that, that'll be a subject for another conversation. But, you know, the thing is, is that it is pretty easy. You can get this without too much of a, a heavy lift. That's what I've been working on the last, you know, several weeks. And anyway, that's there's our close focus. Our close focus is technology. Sorry for for the people who've been listening to this and not being able to see it. Uh, it is on YouTube and where our show is still primarily audio based. It's not all about the visuals. But Thank ben, God. But, but Ben, you wanted to bring this up. So here we are. They were like dancing about architecture, talking about talking about visuals. Wait, talking about 
visuals on a podcast about cinematography. I think but it's But you fair. know what? But it, but it, it is a podcast. Ultimately, it's a podcast. I, know, I guess but it, it, like, it, looks like, it looks like I'm interviewing you for an Errol Morris documentary right now. <laughs> that's that's what the shot looks like. Uh, well, uh, well, thanks. Can, that's pretty funny considering I think I've got like a $100 light over there and a $40 Ikea bulb on the other side. So there you go. Sweet. All right. Well, uh, let's wrap it up and get to the interview. Let's get to the interview with director and, of course, famous actress, but director of Flaming Hot, Eva Longoria, and the DP of Flaming Hot, Federico Cantini. Sweet. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by Eva Longoria and Federico Cantini. Uh, this is the director DP team behind the new movie Flamin' Hot. Hey, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Ayla. How are you? Hey, I-, I just watched this movie. It's on Hulu right now. It is so much fun. It is a great movie. And I- I'm so glad that you guys are here to-, to talk a little bit about it. Give our listeners the log line. Give them the real pitch of this movie. Yeah, uh, Flaming Hot is the true story of Richard Montañez, who created the number one snack in the world, a $4 billion product, and it's called Flaming Hot Cheetos. <laughs> um, and it's a great biopic, not not formulaic in any way. Um, it's really fun, and, and it's a fun ride. Entertaining, uh, dramatic, funny, heartfelt, a lot of heart and humor. Yeah, that's what this movie's about. Uh, so the movie's based on the book written by Richard and it sounds like and I haven't I can't tell because I haven't read the book but there's a quite a bit of humor in this movie I'm assuming some of that humor comes from the book and you've integrated into the story or wh- where does the the humor elements come from is it amped up no, for, for the movie uh, uh, the the humor comes from Richard Montañez the real Richard is so funny um he you know originally when I came on this project I had read an original script and you know it, it was very linear it was very factual and i was like wow this is an amazing story but imagine it in his voice and so i went down a rabbit hole of real richard youtube videos because he's a motivational speaker now he does ted talks he does you know all he travels the country doing all these speaking engagements and uh and he's so funny and he's not educated but man is he smart and he's confident but you see he's he's pretty vulnerable because he doesn't feel like he belongs in a lot of these spaces and rooms and so he was such a contradictory of so many things and i immediately once i did get the job to direct it i was like i i we have to put it in his point of view it's going to be in his pov going to be in his voice and he's funny and he's witty and he's dangerous and he's scary and he's all these things and so that's you know he's the one that really um just if you know him you're like oh that it has to be in his voice he is such a big character in the movie. I mean, of course, he is, you know, the protagonist of this, but also uh, his wife, Judy, is so integral to the story. And there's a lot of humor that kind of takes place and these touching moments between. It's like uh, the movie is great for the whole family, but at the same time, it's just like there's so much going on here. This is not just like a very surface level comedy. It's not just a very surface level biopic. There's a lot of complexities. It deals. It's it's a period piece. It deals with this big swath of time sort of in, you know, Southern California and Central Valley. I, I know that you guys went to New Mexico. I saw the, the credit at the end there. Tell me about a little bit about how actually the making of this movie comes to be. 
Yeah, um, so much, so many things. Because you know, it, it all came to life once uh, once I hired uh, Fede, Federico, my amazing DP. Um, you know, Linda and I wrote this uh, script and, during COVID, and so um, really did a lot of research. And I and I knew early on I wanted to break up his life into these three different decades. You know, uh, his gang banging years his early years at the factory and then flaming hot cheeto at the end and so uh you know we kind of broke up the script in that way and when we were looking at locations we originally were going to shoot in atlanta mm. and we kept thinking you know shit, how are we going to hide the atlanta of it you know <laughs> how are we going to hide the those trees that sky <laughs> but um once i was hired on the job i had already worked with fede fede and i did a movie together i was just an actress but i noticed how amazing he was. He was really an amazing DP. He was It was a, a first-time female director. He was so kind, not just to, to her and, and really held her hand, but he was also kind to his crew and kind to everybody. Like, I hate screamers and I hate screamy DPs. And, I, you know, it just does not make a set a fun environment. And so I just remembered that. And I was like, God, I, I want to work with this guy one day. And then I got the script of Flaming Hot and I sent it to Feather. Feather was the first DP I sent it to. And, you know, he called me back within an hour. And he was like, I have to shoot this film. I got to shoot this film. And, um, you know, as I dug into more of who Federico was, I love he comes from music videos. He comes from commercials. And I love those directors. I think their compositions are way more dynamic. I think their framing is really exciting. I think it's always moving. Like you'll see in our movie, the, the, the camera's barely ever still. So I, I, I wanted Feather from the beginning. And then Searchlight made me meet with all these DPs. Oscar-winning DPs, really big DPs. And a lot of them were great. They were all great. They were great. They were lovely people. But it felt like the little movie they were going to do in between their big movies. You know what I mean? And I was like, no, 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 no. This is my big movie. This is the big movie. I remember so many of them asked me when second unit was. And I was like, there is no second unit. It's this unit. And so Feather, when Feather came and he, he pitched back to me the movie, we had the exact same references. Everything that was in my deck, he was like, it should feel like this. It should be like this. And so it's like when you meet a DP that wants to make the same movie as you, you hit the jackpot because that doesn't always happen. And especially for women and especially for a first time female, first time director. Right. And so, I mean, I'm not, I've directed for 12 yeah, years in TV. But this but is your feature first, debut. Yeah. yeah. This is and so you do, I don't want to fight every day about where to put the camera. Like I, we need to agree on this. And so um, that's when Feather came in and Feather read the script. And he really is the one that broke down the strategy for how to make these decades different. I mean, it was a period piece. I had told him, you know, this is going to be these eras. And he came up with this genius idea of how to make them look really distinct. And that's when, when Federico came in and did his magic. All right. Well, let's bring Federico into this conversation. He's here. So uh, Federico Cantini, uh, you know, Eva's just giving you this, this wonderful uh, buildup and lead in. Uh, a great introduction. Yeah. yeah you, you, <laughs> give, give me your side of this. How, how do, you know, uh, you read the script Sounds like you were blown away. Uh, you said you have to do it. Uh, t tell me what your thoughts were about, you know, first turning these words into pictures. Well, um, yes, I remember like we were like, um, we did a movie with Eva together. She was the actor in it and we met there. And um, we, we really had like a lot of fun. And like uh, for me watching Eva on set, it was great. I mean, she knows so much about filmmaking. She knows everything. She's looking all the time, everything, what is like everyone doing. So... The moment that she asked me, hey, would you like to read this script? I said, of course I want to read. I want to read any script. Uh, and, but she sent me the script, and it was like an amazing script. I love it so much, and I felt 
so related to it. But as I always said, I think that everyone can relate to that script. Like who doesn't relate to a story like that? You know, like it's pretty much like what happened to all of us. And like for me as an immigrant, like I started from zero again in the US when I moved there. Like I started like from very little things trying, you know, to make my little breakthrough and everything was step by step. So I was reading that and I was like, oh, yes, this movie is going to be my flaming hot Cheeto. This is what I have to, I have to make this movie. I, because I, re I really feel like him, you know, really feel. I was Richard Montañez and Eva was my Roger Enrico. She was the one who believed in me. So, so the moment, it was great because the moment that Eva sent me the script, I started thinking about how, what's the best I can do with this material. And what is the, I have to give my 100%. This is like my, this is my one shot. This is my one shot. I have to do the best I can. So I started looking reference and trying, I tried to like to be really prepared. I really tried to be really prepared for this, that it was like a huge opportunity for me. And what it was fun is that because my hiring process was a little bit long, we had time with Eva before pre-production to speak like for two months about the movie even uh, before being officially hired, but we had that time. So for the moment that the pre the official pre-production started, we were already like very, very ahead of us. We really used uh, our time. That's, that's great. So you're, so you're breaking down the script. You have all these uh, pre-production meetings mm. where uh, you guys are starting to, to oh, visualize well, the story. Okay. Yeah. No, but last, last minute we pivoted to Albuquerque. Literally the week before we left for press, yes. they said, never mind. We're going to Albuquerque and and Feather and I were like, oh, thank God, <laughs> because Albuquerque, you can't even tell it's Albuquerque. It, it looks like L.A. There's a lot of pockets in in Albuquerque that look just like Los Angeles. Um, the sky is different. Obviously, the lighting's different. Um, and so we were really excited. So we got to Albuquerque and we had, you know, we had a good, you know, two and a half months of prep. And luckily, Feather is a big prepper like I am. Like we really prep every shot, every every scene every, we had mo a model of the factory we built that factory we i mean it was it was the best prep i i had ever been through and some dps don't like to do that you know they really like to shoot from the hip and they get in a room and they're like we'll figure it out when we get there and we were like no one because we, we didn't have the time um this was a 30-day shoot in 108 sets wow um and wow and during covid during covid, during COVID. Out with Ace. yeah and so much of it takes place in the Frito-Lay factory, giving nothing away here. But it's like if you built all that, that's a bunch of heavy machinery. That's machinery that you see working. That's not CG. You guys have like giant tumbling machines where like cheese puffs are being extruded and all this. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to imagine that when those machines were running, too, it's not exactly silent. That is good. Wow. You're, you're, yeah, you guys are shooting that's in. You made a factory essentially to shoot in. Feather and I worked so closely with our production designers, Brandon Mendez and Cabot McMullen, to build this factory. We, there was no way we could have used a, a modern day Frito factory because it's too automated. It's There's no people there. Uh, but in the 70s and 80s, it was a very different look. And so we knew we were going to have to build quickly and we wanted everything moving because we wanted every time we shot in the factory to have so much depth 
Like you could see all the way through. And so for that reason, everything had to be moving. The tumbler deep in frame had to be on and Cheetos are coming out of it. And the conveyor belt right in front of them is working with potato chips on it. Like it was really an incredible feat for our production design. And Feather Feather worked really close with them uh, in regards to the lighting. Because the one thing I told Feather, I like, I just tell Feather what I want to feel. And then he would run off and go figure it out. <laughs> I was like, I don't want it to feel cold. Like it, it, half our movies in this factory, it can't feel gray and sad. And so Feather, you can tell them more about how you worked with, with them as far as color palette in the... Yes. I mean, the first thing that the great idea that the production designers had was like everything was on wheels. So it was like a huge Lego that we were able to move like some big pieces around to always have like different backgrounds on different scenes. Every single shot of the movie is like uh, prepped uh, before time. Like we had exactly per sequence, exactly, okay, dolly, one dolly from here to here, the technocrine here, exactly shot by shot, everything ready. So the guys were ready to prep the factory, the positioning of the things for our shot that day. So that was great. And um, because really they built it from scratch. They built it from scratch. There was nothing there. Uh, we were able to pick like the perfect, like uh, shiny material. We were like uh, uh, able to put the exact, all the practical lights all around with the yellow color that we want. We were able to paint the walls exactly the color that we want. It was really like, we really had a blast. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. I think that the gift was this is so great. We can start from scratch. We can really modify the factory and how we want to shoot. And the bad news was, fuck, we got to build this factory. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it was a curse and a blessing because we, th we shot three weeks on the house and locations and then three weeks inside the factory. And so the factory obviously was the last because it just wasn't done yet. It wasn't done. It wasn't done. It wasn't done. And we were like, ah, trying to, trying to buy time to make sure once we landed in the factory, we stayed there for the remaining of the shoot And uh, we lucked out. We also found this factory that had a lot of other locations that we could, um, like I said, just land there and be there. We had offices there. We we shot the post office near there. We shot a lot of things. It, it's, it doubled as a lot of stuff. Um, and like I said, this was a very aggressive schedule. Uh, the studio kept telling us, you've got to drop strips. You got, you're never going to make your days. This is too aggressive. You're never, this is too much in one day. And luckily I come from TV. And so I'm used to shooting eight pages a day. I'm like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? This is going to be, this is going to be a snap. So I, I was so lucky to have Feather going, yes, this is absolutely accomplishable. Uh, and there wasn't one day we dropped a scene and there wasn't one day we punted anything. Like we did everything we want. We exhausted every single creative bone in our body. We left everything on the factory yeah. floor. Well, you definitely did. You, I mean, it, the, the proof is on the screen. It's, it's, it's so much fun to watch and you get these, you know, you've, you've directed a lot of things before Eva, but you get these incredible performances too, from Dennis Haysburg and uh, excuse me, Dennis Haysburg, if I can say his name, Tony Shalhoub. I mean, these other, these, these people come in, they steal their scenes. It's like, I mean, they're so, so good. Dennis Haysburg has so much gravitas and stuff. It's, you know, yeah. it's every scene he's in, it's like, it, it, he's magnetic. It's so much fun to watch. 
Now, uh, Federico, I want to I want to bring you into this yes. here, too. So when you've got some of these uh, sequences and I'm thinking very specifically of these sort of like the uh, Richard sort of telling stories and sort of like, you know, Cholo voice and it's slow motion <laughs> and you've got all the, you know, these reenactments sort of things that you see that are just sort of like these these little like. Uh, you know, comedy grenades that kind of go off in the midst of the story. Like even when things are serious, there's like a levity to it. Tell us a little bit about your, you know, when you, there's these sort of like in his head sort of fantasy sequences. How do you bring that to life? Well, the first thing that we did is like to separate the movie in these three different moments, his childhood, his gangbang uh, days, and when he's in the factory and how he's like, you know, progressing in life after that. And uh, we try to find, like, first a visual language for each of those moments and then, like, an overall, you know, stitch all those visual languages to make it, like, part of the same film. So what we did is, like, okay, we wanted to make it look like each part of his life to reflect not only the era, you know, not only the 60s, the 60s, 70s, 70s, but also his, like, personal moment in his life. So what we did is we use um, three different lens series for each moment. We use the Crystal Express for mm. when oh, he's yeah, a kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We use the K-35s oh, of on course. his Gangnam yeah. days. And then on the 80s and 90s, we use the Panavision Panaspeeds, but we modify them to make it look like super speeds from the 80s, but in large format. But all that, all that had a reason, has a reason. Um, because when we started prepping, we had this idea. But, you know, you first have had the idea and then, okay, how do we do it? Uh, so we start like uh, testing all the lenses, all Panavision Hollywood. They were really nice with us. Like we were able to, okay, like try whatever you want. All the cameras, all the lenses. And from there, we pick uh, these three. Um, the first one, my idea with his childhood because you know even that his childhood it's um pretty rough you know with his dad and he's you know he's a underage farmer worker i mean it's pretty terrible but he's such a positive guy that in his memory he remembers that he had fun there is a beautiful shot that i remember with you we thought about shot that is like a wide shot that we see the farm it's a beautiful shot and you know we go down with the camera he's running with his friends he's having fun and then we pan he hits his dad and his dad says hey volví a trabajar so you see like the entire process of his mind you know in um, in one shot you know he thinks it's, it's like Disneyland for him but no it is not so for that moment we use these lenses because you know this Crystal Express they really look like a dream and like a childhood memory you know, they have that soft edges and everything looks like beautiful. Whatever you shoot looks beautiful. And we wanted like to, you know, to express how we remember that with those lenses. And I remember like the, the school also with Iwa. We, we, we were able to push for a beautiful school that remember Iwa that like, we, we, we almost lost that location like four times. Yeah. 
Okay, so Federico, I'm going to interrupt you here, though, because, you know, it is always the painter and not the paintbrush. You know, you can't just put these lenses on anything and all of a sudden, you know, instantly you have to apply your, your lighting and your, your color palette and your techniques and the grade and everything else. It It's, uh you know, those Crystal Express lenses, they're lovely. I know exactly, you know, the, the, from which the era which they, they come from. And you made such great use out of them because if you stop them down, they are going to look pretty normal and stuff. You must have been shooting wide open and adding, you know, more effects to this to really kind of set that set the period tone and it's very effective as you're watching it you know that it feels like uh, almost like flashback it feels like you know this is this is history and it, it's sort of like you remember you know if for those of us who are alive who can remember those sort those sorts of days what 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 that time was like so talk a little bit about just your process of trying to select your colors it's warm and it's it's a memory but it's not too warm it's not like some fictitious era it feels still very grounded how did this come about First, we work with a great colorist, uh, Walter Volpato, which he is a genius, and uh, he helped me a lot even before starting production because um, we had some LUTs for each decade, simulating different like film stocks. So we had one from the 60s, and he helped me with that, you know, to already have a little bit like warm palette. But yes, we didn't want like a sepia tone. We wanted to see the colors and the greens of nature and the blue, but having just a little bit like a hint of a memory. And there is a thing that at that moment, the camera is moving all the time. You know, it's like a happy camera move all the time because he's a kid and he, you know, he's follow the camera is following him around all the time in an opposition. The movie has a lot of like uh, connections between the decades. For example, the opposite to the sixties when he's a kid and the camera is moving around all the time. When he's at his dad home, and we we are with the K35s. He's all the time like against a wall. There is like a flat background, and the camera is not moving at all because he's not moving. He's he feels like oppressed by his dad. Remember, Eva, that that was like the first day we shot in the house. Somebody said, "Hey, but the camera is not moving. What's going on?" It was all part of a, like a creative process. But you know, some people were a little bit surprised that we were not moving the camera. But that was part of the idea. You'll notice that. Um the camera is rarely not moving. There was a lot of, mm. you know, my big inspirations were Scorsese, yes. Adam McKay, because they do strong point of views. And I, I'm not a fan of voiceover. I think sometimes it could be a very lazy device. But when done well, you know, it's very effective and you can get a lot of story out quickly. And so I loved montages, right? We have 11 montages in the movie. And so we were going, okay, how do we get this information out quickly? Because we, we want to sit in these scenes, but I got to give them the information, whether it was the Chicano history 101 or the introduction of the factory hierarchy um, or the recipe making. Like, I don't want to be all day in a kitchen, but like, I need to, I need to get this information out. And so a lot of, oh, sorry, what, Fede? Because we had so many montages and we wanted the movie to go so fast that we had a lot of shots that, you know, you need to show a lot of information in one shot. So it was, you know, when I was a fan and you see a lot of stuff in one shot. I remember that we had many of those. Yeah, and we stole that, we not stole, we were inspired. We were inspired by yes. uh, Spielberg. He does that a lot. He hides a lot of coverage in Warners. So we, we're not only Spielberg, but like we watched a lot of factory movies because we were like, how can we make this still interesting. We don't want people to zone out when when we're in the factory. And there wasn't, we, we did our director plans where we were never in the same spot twice. 
Mm. And, we, and if, if we were in the same spot, it was a different, you know, we were on the other side of the line or we were on a crane now, or we were, you know, we really made each shot in the factory try to be different. And, and the uh, factory feels huge for that too, because you yeah. have all these different places and you're not just going back to the same, same set piece in the exact same way every time. I mean, it really feels like it must've been a hundred thousand square foot studio or, or, you know, a gigantic was, place. But, but if you yeah. get clever and you can move around, then yeah, you know, that that's where the movie big. magic it, is. It was, yeah. it was, it was pretty big. <laughs> it was pretty big. But I so, remember like the first day we landed in the, in the factory, my watch said I had done 12 miles. Wow. In 10 hours. <laughs> That's how much we were walking back and forth, back yes. and forth, back and forth, because it was so big. Um, but also, you know, I hate movies where you lose your orientation. Mm. And you, even though we were different in every spot, you never lost your orientation of where you were in the factory. Like, you really, we really did a good job of like, okay, yeah, janitor's office, tumbler, loading dock. Like, you really know where you are at all times. For sure, for sure. And I think that these montages that you speak about, they, they really do move this. I mean, this is a fast moving story. It is a quick watch. Like, I, I couldn't believe it, yeah. like, when it was over. And, and, you know, let me tell you, I think that's great. I think that's a lot of other movies could take could take a lesson from you because, you know, it, it's really tremendous when you sit down and like the movie's over and you're like, you kind of like, I could have even used more that I enjoyed that feeling so much. And that montage of when they're in the kitchen and they're going through the bad hot versus good hot and all of that stuff. I love that. That that to me, that to me was like, you know, it was really it was the the refining and figuring out of what the formula was going to be. That that whole sequence is just was like a joy from beginning to end. Can you can you talk a little bit about like yeah. the, the pace, well, you know, from from the get go yeah. when you when you wrote the script was the intention always that this has got we got to cover a lot of years. We got to keep it moving. We got to keep it keep yeah. it happening. What what was your thought process at all for for breaking down for sure, the, the pace of the movie? Look, I love a ninety minute movie in general. I'm <laughs> I feel like movies are getting so long now that you're like, could that have been a miniseries? Yeah. Uh, but or very early, Ron Howard's one of my mentors, and his motto is like not so much a three act structure. His motto is like something should be happening every nine to ten pages, so you should have nine to ten page sequences. And because of that format, we wrote it that way. It's a page turner. You know, you're just constantly, it's moving. And there was a lot of repetitive moments that happened in Richard's life that we ended up cutting out of the script. We didn't even shoot it because we're like, no, that that beat services the same beat over here. So we don't need it. So really being economical with each scene has to move the story forward. We can't just be in a scene for the sake of being in a scene. Everything had to keep moving forward. And because of that, we had a lot of strips. And so, you know, short, fast, montage, long, short scenes, fast scenes, wonners, a lot of wonners. And that lends itself to a really fast edit. But once I explained this all to, vomited all of this onto Fede, Fede really figured it out. And, and then Fede's idea also to accent that was to use this probe lens he had this great idea and he showed me this like a uh, demo of this lens that makes everything just seem looks giant. huge giant and so instead of uh i mean we peppered in that those shots so much within the in the film that it just it was almost like a palate cleanser sometimes when you got out of a scene and you were just in a super zoom close up thing of a tomato, you know, or whatever. And we used a lot of that in the uh, recipe making scene. Do you want to say something about the problems, Fede? Uh, you know, every, everything starts, he starts in the factory is bigger than life. The factory is bigger than life. His idea is bigger than life. That's why we, we build a huge Cheeto 
to do one of those shots with the probe because we had the problems, but also we had a huge Shiro throwing dust to it. It was a lot of fun. We did it with a Phantom that because, you know, it's, that lens gives you the idea that everything is huge. And for him, it was huge. And we wanted to, to give that idea. We saved the large format for the factory. Once he get in the factory, we start getting these shots with the probe lens, but also we start getting like large format lenses and everything looks huge. Everything looks bigger. That's what we wanted to do. Since the moment that he gets there and everything is going better, everything looks bigger. Even his house looks bigger because we change the format of the camera in the middle of the movie. Mm. So you see his house in two different ways. Wow. Uh, did you also switch cameras at that point too? No, we did not switch cameras, but we switched the sensor. It was mm. the sensor was in Super 35 mm -hmm. at the beginning and in his house, and then we changed it to large format. I understand. Okay, gotcha. Well, so, that, that, that's know, a clever, clever the house, trick. Yeah. It's a clever trick. You know, suddenly the house looks a little bit bigger, a little bit brighter. You are seeing through his eyes, the reality is a little bit different. You know, like everything is a little bit bigger. Do you know if uh, if Richard Montañez has seen this uh, scene in Flaming Hot? Has he? Oh uh, given, yes. Yeah. And uh, and, oh, and yeah. Judy, did you get some feedback from them? Did they? You know, how did oh, they feel yeah. about seeing their life on the big screen? Or they the were there screen? when we were shooting. They oh, were there okay. when we were shooting. Um, you know, it's hard to do a biopic, and then it's hard to do a biopic when they're still alive, mm -hmm. and it's hard to do a biopic when they're still alive and still young. Like he's only sixty. You know, he's yeah, yeah. he was there. He's in the movie. He does a cameo. Um, but no, he, he was blown away. He could, you know, he had no words the first time he saw the completed film and he was like, I can't, I, I can't believe you, you captured how I felt. Like it wasn't so much the scenes and things like he just knew how he felt. And he's like, that's exactly how I felt in that moment. It's exactly how I felt when that happened. And, um, specifically, specifically for his family and for his kids and for his grandkids to see this, they were like, wow, dad, you know, grandpa, you had it hard and um he really was blown away and it's funny because feather and i i think good movies stem from like how do you want the audience to feel so this was we wanted to make a feel-good movie we wanted it to have a lot of heart and humor and we wanted it to be authentic not only to his story but like to this community to the people we were representing to this culture to this era and that was our north star you know was authenticity and i think he had a great appreciation about it and for it and uh and then you know when we had fun all of those cholo sequences in the offices with tony shalhoub and the reason those were born out of uh necessity because uh the movies is, is all in richard's point of view except when we had to go to texas to frito-lay headquarters and i was like well he never went in real life he was never there and we couldn't show scenes if he wasn't there because how would he know that happened? And and it didn't bump anybody else. It really bumped Feather and I. We we're like, no, he wasn't there. Like, how do we show this? And so um, that's when we made it. Like, maybe this is what he think happened. This is what he thought happened in those in those things. And they were like, they were so funny and the highest testing scenes of the movie. Uh, okay. Also, there, there was one other moment I was watching too uh, in, in the movie that made me think like, is this real? The whole like, uh, guerrilla marketing aspect when, you know, Flamin' Hot's not not selling, but he organizes the community, he organizes his co-workers, he organizes people to get the word out and to, to, to you know, uh, that more or less happened, like like from the story, that's that's how it went down? Yeah. 
That's, wow. That was his that was his superpower. His superpower, like his genius wasn't the recipe because they didn't use his recipe. Um, they were we were clear about that in the in the film as well. Like they already had a spice and they're like, oh, let's let's put that on there and see what happens. It was his genius of of grassroots marketing and knowing his community and the consumers in the community. And he did. It was not selling. And he went out. I want to say he even got a loan. I can't remember exactly, but he actually went and bought all the the flaming hots and handed them out at baseball games, uh, at quinceañeras, and he told people go into your convenience store and ask them for flaming hots, and then they wouldn't have any, so they'd have to reorder them. Mm-hmm. So that's when it started blowing up. But yeah, he got everybody, everybody in Southern California, and that's why the birth of flaming hot. I always tell Frito Lay. You may make them, but the Hispanic community owns them. Like they own that brand. They they're the ones that made that brand the number one brand snack in the world. Uh, we've been chatting for a while here. I got to ask, what's next? More movies? More movies? You like you like doing movies now? Is it? Is, do you have the bug? Is it? Uh, you want to do more TV? <laughs> you want to keep acting? You want to do all of the above? How, what's, what? Yeah. What's 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 next for you? Where I'm going to do everything. I'm I'm really gonna. I like. I prefer directing what I'm in. Actually, mm. I like to do oh, wow. I like to do double duty and I'm just efficient. And I, I when I'm just an actor, I can see all the inefficiencies or I can see the ill prepared director or I can see like <laughs> the the extra hour they're putting on because they didn't do the master first or whatever. You know, I just can't get out of my head when I'm now that I'm acting and uh, when I'm just acting. But, you know, I want to do it all. And I, I really I could I could see myself stuck in a good way in biopic world because there are so many stories but I want to tell uh, true stories from our community and true heroes that I just think belong on the big screen and belong in people's hearts and minds. And uh, I want to do some culture defining filmmaking, you know, and so finding those stories and, and producing with purpose and, and you know, saying something uh, is, is the bar. That's the goal. But I'll tell you, I'll, I'll always be doing it with Federico. That's fantastic. Fe- Federico, uh, I, I assume you had a good experience. <laughs> oh, we had such a great experience. It was so good. It was so, so good. And it's, um, so, it was so good. We had so much fun that um, it's hard to like uh, to think about the next movie. How are we going to make a movie as great as this one, that the experience was so good, that a movie that became like, a you know, a cultural phenomenon like this one. Like, I'm like, What's next? Like to be at this level? I mean, it's good. It's going to be hard, but I mean, I think we are ready. But um, that's, <laughs> we have. That's, Beth and I have been reading everything, and we're like, eh. yes, yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a, there's a there's a lot of stuff out there, and it, and even more now that the strikes are over. So you know that yes. that's great. So uh, so yes, I uh, I have a feeling you're going to be reading a lot. Uh, how how's been the reaction from Hulu and from the from the community of people out there who are well, getting we to see it? Well, we were the first uh, we were the first film to be on Hulu and Disney Plus at the same time. Mm. Uh, first movie released on two platforms, and it just did so well. And I think um, you know. For me, I love that, you know, this story was so specific about a specific man and a specific culture. And like I said, our North Star was to be authentic. But it's interesting how the more authentic you are, the broader the reach. 
And so, you know, we just had a screening in London and France and they love it. Like people are like, I am Richard Montañez. <laughs> they don't even but, have flaming hot Cheetos. But it's so relatable that who cannot relate? It's, it's, I hear like so many people that love the movie, even like teenagers love the movie because they love flaming hot Cheetos. Like it's a movie for everyone. I, I think it's a, it's very much an American story. It very much feels like, you know, yes. uh, you know, it's, it's not just like good ideas can come from anywhere, but it, it, there's also sort of like the, the idea that if you work hard and you, you know, try to try to do well, that occasionally a little, with a little bit of luck, you know, the good stuff comes back and you really do change the world. You do th make things for the better. And uh, that's Richard's story in a nutshell, which is, which is fantastic. And I think that uh, everyone wants more stories like that. That's those are, they're not, you know, They're hard to find. They don't usually get get everyone's attention, and so when it comes along, I think that uh, you know, really, it's it's something special. Uh, do do you feel like you know, as you're you're searching for your next project or deciding what you're going to do next, that 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 you you want to branch out, you want to try different things? Are you looking for a film noir or a science fiction, or are you? Yeah, you wanted, it's so funny. Wanted... Feather yeah. and I talk about that all the time. Feather and I were like, oh, because there was um, there's a war hero. Um, movie biopic that I want to tell and when Feather and I kind of went down a rabbit hole of like what's a what's a mm. what's the new version of a war movie right like that we haven't seen and how do we shoot that differently and then we saw you know I sent him a big action comedy and we were like yeah how could this be funny like yeah we we try to think of genres and then go how do we turn it on its head or how do we make it different And that's probably, I think, one of Feather's geniuses is like really, you know, he's like an encyclopedia of film. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's a really great place for us to leave it. Eva Federico, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great fun. Anyone who wants to go see Flame and Hot can do it right now on Disney Plus or Hulu. Uh, I can't wait to see what you guys do next. Thank you, Ilya. Thank you for having us. Ilya, thank you so much for having us. It was great. All right, so that was the team behind Flaming Hot, uh, Eva Longoria and Federico Cantini. Thanks so much for being on the show. I can't wait to see your next collaboration. And uh, I'd love to have you guys back and talk about your next thing again. Come back. Come back all come the back. time. Yeah, come back. Just just keep coming back. Uh, and Ben, Eva is a huge fan of our show, and she What? has been listening to our show for years. What? And yes, she she told me off mic how much she loves our show. So so, so there you go. Yeah, I know. Isn't that great? Isn't make you get, go add a little spring in your step? She's she's a huge fan. That's that amazing. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you, Eva Longoria. I I'm unbelievably flattered. Yeah, I, I know it was it was it was really high praise. It was really nice to hear, and uh, I, I wish I'd hit record earlier so that I I had her whole like you know gushing about how how much she she loved what we were doing. So that was wonderful. Yeah, totally. Wow. <laughs> Seriously though, if you're listening to my voice, Eva Langoria, thank you. We we love you. Thank you yes, very much. Th thank thank you, Eva. That that was it was a wonderful interview with you and Federico. I am super excited to do it again sometime. Okay, excellent. So so Ben, guess what? What? <laughs> It's time to pay some bills. So nice. uh, we have to thank our fine friends over at Aperture, makers of all kinds of lighting equipment ranging, oh my gosh, ranging from uh, entry-level stuff to now extremely high-end, expensive, really powerful LED lights. I got to mention they have a sale going on right now. In fact, actually from right now, I believe until the 24th, 
And uh, of course, that sale is also being honored through Hot Red Cameras. So at Hot Red Cameras, you can save up to 25% on some of the uh, most popular aperture lights uh, this holiday season. It goes all the way through through the 24th. Make sure you go to Hot Red Cameras and click on the Black Friday sort of holiday special sale banner at the top. And there will be a selection there for aperture specifically where you can see all the products that are on sale. And you can save a couple of bucks if you're interested in picking up a new uh, aperture light right now. Now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our short ends. It is the time when we talk about our pet obsession. It could be anything. What is it that you are obsessed about or you're all about this week? Well, there is a it's it's the siren song of a documentary show about a cult. And it's on. <laughs> I know you. You can't resist a good documentary yeah. about a cult. You love the cult okay. documentaries. So this is. I'm going to go out on a limb and say possibly the most disturbing one I've ever seen. Ooh, that's a, that's a high praise coming from yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, in, including like including podcasts and stuff that go into deep dives on this stuff. So it's on HBO. It's called Love Has Won: The Cult of the Mother God. Hmm. Holy crap! Was I not prepared for how dark this freaking documentary was going to go? It it kind of starts. In kind of typical new agey uh, bullshit, a woman named Amy Carlson who decides that she is God the mother and and she finds a God the father. And by the way, this is very recent. Like the story, I think that they start this thing in like 2013. It gets real traction in 2016, 2017. Most of the events of the documentary take place between 2018 and 2021. Oh, wow. So it's yeah. very, very recent. And I should uh, shout out, by the way, that it was directed by Hannah Olsen uh, with cinematography by Christopher Messina. And the, the interviews look not unlike uh, the shot of you right now. It's a lot of the down the barrel shot that you see uh, that's very typical of documentary, I assume done with an eye direct. And there's tons of archival footage because it's so recent. These people ha- were making tons of web shows and filming themselves doing stuff. And a lot of it is the same old, same old cult stuff where people leave their families and go follow this woman, Amy Carlson. And Amy Carlson was like in her early to mid thirties when she started. And this is not a spoiler because you find this out in the opening scene. She was in her mid forties when she died. But after she died, they kind of kept her around for a while and (laughs) toted her body around. What? uh, Yeah. And uh, and this cult made it it wasn't like a big cult like the Moonies or something where they're raking in millions of dollars. But for kind of a small group of probably 20 people or under, they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, A lot of it is selling colloidal silver, which is kind of non-medicinal snake oil stuff and doing a lot of drugs. Oh, my God, were they doing a lot of drugs? But they were also selling uh, consultations and spiritual stuff. And anyone who knows me knows that new aginess is kind of a trigger for me and drives me up a wall, especially cult level new aginess, which this definitely was. And a lot like even like Nexium and uh, Heaven's Gate. It's like you look at it and you're like, I get these people like I understand. Like I've met people like this. Uh, Most of these people are like college graduates or at least relatively intelligent should freaking know better than than to fall for all this horseshit and yet they just down the rabbit hole they all go and it's dark it's weird uh it looks great it's very compelling it's three episodes i uh binged them i couldn't stop watching once i started 
I should say I started watching it one day and I was like, I don't know if I can handle this because it's too I'm going to be screaming at the television worse than when I watch Ancient Aliens. And then uh, like a week or two later, I came back to it. And as soon as I started watching it, I couldn't I could not stop. The characters are very interesting, but also extremely disturbing and most of them are still around still alive still doing stuff they kind of give you the recap and and to me that's almost the craziest part of it is after all the events of this movie are over it's like the wrap-up is all of these people are still doing some version of what they were doing before they learned nothing so spoiler alert it's bonkers and and definitely uh very compelling compellingly put together Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Top that. What's your short end? (laughs) I don't know if I can top that, but it is also a documentary series. This one is on Apple TV Plus and uh, it is also something I binged. I watched all of it yesterday, but it is Wanted, The Escape of Carlos Ghosn. He is, of course, the disgraced executive who was co-CEO or sorry, he was the CEO of two companies simultaneously. Oh, wait, I've heard uh, this story. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah keep Ren- going. Keep going. Yeah. Renault uh, in France and Nissan in Japan. And he's sort of this larger than life figure because he turned around both of these companies, which were like they were failing. They were, they were in real trouble. And he figured out ways to uh, slash expenses, increase profitability. And he really became this like very, very popular executive sort of on the world stage. But what's particularly interesting is that he was up to some shenanigans of one sort or another, and uh, mostly involving defrauding Nissan, but potentially involving defrauding Renault as well. And he was arrested in Japan and then smuggled out of Japan by a former Green Beret in a musician's case, like a large roadie case. And he's that's, now living that's in the part that I always remember like that. That's yeah. the craziest part of the story. He's now living in Lebanon without a passport, supposedly, and he has said that he just wanted a fair trial and he wouldn't receive a fair trial in Japan. So he was going to cooperate completely if France or any other, you know, sort of Western nation came along and said, "Okay, we're going to have your trial in France. Well, France has come forward and said, all right, we would like you to come stand trial in in France now. And he's saying, oh, I can't do that, which uh, I don't think he's ever going anywhere again because uh, he's in real trouble if he tries to go someplace with an extradition policy with Japan or France. And what's interesting is like the people who helped him escape, they went to jail. An American. Honestly, as well, they should. Yeah. Yeah. No, they got extradited to Japan and went to jail. And the story of them being in jail is not a good one. And it's, and it really does shine a light on the Japanese legal system, of which I was fairly ignorant, you know, the idea of corruption inside of their system is one that the the Gone attorneys, the Gone side, continues to play up. That people were out to get him. That it was a witch hunt. That uh, there was a, a vendetta against Carlos Gone. And really, the first few episodes of this documentary series really kind of uh, is showing you his side. And he participates. He does an interview with the, you know, with the Apple TV Plus team. And it's actually also the Wall Street Journal. So the Wall Street Journal is involved in this as well, too. And he's he's on camera. They get his wife. They get uh, the people who did bust him out of Japan. And it's like all these people get get interviewed for the documentary series which is like i know there's other series out there so i don't i haven't seen those yet but you know how hard it is to get people who are embattled or you know controversial and they got all these people for this series which is 
which is really fascinating. So I, I highly recommend it. It's totally binge worthy. Wanted the escape of Carlos Ghosn, uh, Apple TV Plus. If you've got, subscribed, you can go see it right now. Wow. Yeah, I'll check that out. That's awesome. Yeah, I've heard. I think I heard that story on a podcast years ago, and I was like, "That's bonkers." And it, uh, it, it is and, bonkers. and I feel yeah. like they really could have shared that case with the Love Has Won uh, people, and they could have at least toted their leader around in a in a, in a case. <laughs> they could have had a instead of wrapping her in a sleeping bag and throwing her in the back of their car, apparently, which is what they did. What? It's so it's you know, it's interesting. Uh, and don't tell me don't ask me how I know this, but I do know that in many American states, you are allowed to keep a dead body in your house as long as it is, quote unquote, well preserved. I don't know what qualifies as well preserved, but yeah, that is a that that's odd. That's a super you know, there odd are one. certain laws that I just won't avail myself of. And that's one of them. <laughs> I, I'm I'm I, I'm really OK not keeping a dead body around. But yeah, I mean, like. In the, I, I'm sorry not to keep dwelling on it, but in the documentary, it's like the col- she's taking so much colloidal silver that mm. her skin starts to turn bluish gray. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a real side effect from from too much of that, for sure. And they are presuming that it's because she's God and she's absorbing all the pain of the world. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's super it's- creepy. I mean, like, it's so so goddamn creepy. I, having grown up as I did, not in a new age cult. I didn't grow up in a new age cult, but my parents are very new agey and they took me around a lot of like uh, human potential seminar kind of things. And there's a lot of crystal garbage and alt med garbage that was shoved down my throat at an early age. And I, I felt in my heart that it was all garbage and stupid. But, you know, when you're 14 years old, you assume your parents know more than you do. And so I went along with it. And I think that it's very vindicating for me at my advanced age to be like, nope, that was all what looked stupid then was actually stupid. I think it's pretty funny that that was 14, because at 15, you probably like, I'm rebelling against you parents. You guys suck. It only took like one year for you to like, you know, really, you you were like, hey, I'm being indoctrinated. And then to complete have the backlash. So, you know, (laughs) hey, anyway. uh, Ben, I think that just about does it for this episode. Let's thank some people. Who do we have to thank for this, uh, this uh, show? As always, let's thank uh, our fine producer, Alana Cody, who uh, is getting us so many kick-ass interviews. You know, uh, it's Oscar season, so we're getting a lot, of, a, a lot of awesome people, and we have some great ones coming up as well. We should thank Ben Katz, our intrepid editor, who now has to cut my uh, webcam against your extremely cinematic, like... Robert Richardson's there filming you for fast, cheap, and out of control. A beautiful looking, soft uh, background uh, uh, shot. But thank you, Ben Katz, for making us not sound like imbeciles and uh, apparently look like... Uh, two weeks, Ben. We'll change, we'll change this up. Two, two more weeks. weeks. Yeah. All right. Okay. And uh, and last but never least, let's thank Kazal Atrakshi, who is probably uh, sitting in his car cursing at the camera choice that you made. That's my assumption. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's not a Sigma or a Blackmagic. I know he loves those cameras as much as anything in the world. So uh, you know, we'll have to we'll have to try one of those at some point here too. At some point, I, yeah. I, I love both those camera systems. You know, I used I to be great. someone who would get on a team for a computer. Like I was all Team Apple. I was all Team panasonic for all cameras and blah 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 and i feel like i'm so much more agnostic about all that stuff today although i still prefer apple os just because it's what i'm used to but i'm also well aware that you can accomplish the same thing with whatever you got so you know 
there's lots of great people out there who make hammers. You know, you can you know, one hammer does this, one hammer does yeah. that. All of these things are tools. They're just talking about tools. Your operating system, your yeah. camera, it's a tool. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, Kays. Anyway, <laughs> up yours, Kays. Um, <laughs> but thanks, Kays, for all the music. Uh, everyone go to musicbykays.com. Check out some of his music. You know, Kays is, uh, is color grading up my friend's film right now. Oh, all he's, right. uh, yeah, yeah. My friend Jill Bennett, he's grading her film. So he's he might be listening to us while he grades. I'm not sure. Could be. Could be happening. I, I was going to ask people where they can find you. If you don't oh. want to find you, find you here on this podcast. Or, yeah, where can me. people find you, Ben? You can find me at uh, benrock.com. Go to benrock.com for all your uh, Benrock uh, information and uh, accessories. I don't have accessories. I have no merch. I, I should make some merch. How about yourself, Philly? Where can people find you? You have merch. Well, I, I have a shop. I have a company that's, that sells things. So uh, Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. You, if you listen to this podcast, you might have heard we're the presenting sponsor of the show. But yeah, you can find me there uh, a good portion of the time. Well, I, I don't have an official sign off. I said last week, thanks for tuning in. I think you said that the week before. Do you want to keep using it? I don't know. Anyone listening yeah. to us, if you can think of a better one, please ooh, send it around. Oh, yeah. Let's let, let's get let's that's get some, a wrap. Some, some listener. That's a wrap. Oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. The, down the martini shot. I don't know what it is. It, yeah. I think that there's. Well, we'll we'll, we'll workshop this. We'll figure yeah, something yeah, out. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll keep going. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. <laughs> this has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Mm